You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. On March 1st, 1974, they hand down the comprehensive Watergate cover-up indictment, and it names seven people, predominantly Nick uh, uh, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and Mitchell, but there are others, and it names 19 unindicted co-conspirators. We think you guys were involved, but we're not, gonna, we're not going to indict you uh, because either you've pled to something else or we, you've made a deal, we've got your testimony, one of whom was Richard Nixon. What date does that indictment come down? March 1st, 1974, but they keep the 19 number secret so the, the president and his people don't know, and they want to use it in their notes as a bargaining position with the White House. There's a phone call the night before. Al Haig calls Leon Jaworski. Jaworski writes about it in his memo. Haig says, I hear there's going to be action tomorrow. Uh, let me ask you something, Leon. Uh, are there steps we need to take here to prepare for what you're going to do tomorrow? And Jaworski says, no, I can't think of anything that you need to do. And Haig says, you're a great American, Leon. I appreciate that. I appreciate the Vance notice. And Haig concludes they're not going to name Richard Nixon. I mean, Jaworski hasn't said it, but he's implied it. And Jaworski's too sly. He's weasel-worded it. So Haig tells Nixon, you're off the hook. But he's not. Same March 1st event, they announce they also have a grand jury report. And the grand jury wants to give Sirica a report that they've asked Sirica to send to the House Judiciary Committee. Now, this is complicated because it's never been done. It's so complicated that Jaworski slips into Sirica's office a half hour before the hearing and they rehearse how they're going to do this. Ex parte. Ex parte. Well, legal up, ethicist would say go again. Go crazy. Go crazy. Because Jaworski says, well, look, we'll announce the, you, do you have anything to report? We'll announce the indictment. And then we'll say, we're going to ask for special handling for the indictment. That will enable you to take it out of rotation. No normal judge rotation by fluke. And you can name yourself to preside, which he does later that day. And then we will tell you we have this special report. You will accept the report. So they rehearse it. Then they go in and do it. And then they meet afterwards to review and relish how well it went. And they agree they'll keep in touch going forward. How do you know all this from Jaworski's notes? Jaworski's memo. He writes a confidential memo to the file. I mean, it's right there. But it didn't come out until 2013. Appendix H.G. Jaworski, March 6th, 1974. On the eve of Thursday, February 28th, with the Mitchell Stans jury selected in New York and sequestered, 
it became apparent that we would move to bring in the Watergate cover-up indictments on Friday morning. After checking with Judge Sirica, the hour of 11 a.m. was decided upon. Crossed out. I have already talked to Judge Sirica about bringing in of a sealed report by the grand jury in addition to the indictment, and this he has approved. Not marked out. I made known to him in advance that such a report was forthcoming, marked out, so that he would not be, not have been startled by the mat, this matter. Not marked out from here on out. On Thursday evening, February 28th, just as I was preparing to leave the office around 645, Alexander Haig called saying that there were so many rumors afloat that he was concerned, that he feared unexpected developments, etc., and he wondered if there was anything I could properly disclose. I told him that there was nothing I could disclose as to the contents of the indictment or the report he had heard would be made. I did tell him that if the grand jury made a report, in addition to returning an, to an indictment, he should expect Judge Sirica, as would I, to accept it and act on it. He stated that he and the White House generally are fully expecting the grand jury evidence to be made available to the House Judiciary Committee, that they realized it belonged there. I suggested to him that the evidence may well have serious repercussions, and he stated that he was aware of that. I suggested that he and the President's counsel take a close look at the March 21st meeting and the actions that followed, even though the President took no personal part in the events that followed the March 21st meeting. Finally, he asked whether there was any indictment contemplated involving present White House aides, and as much as he needed to make arrangements to meet the situation, I told him none was contemplated at this time. Twice during the conversation, he said that he really called to tell me that I was, quote, a great American. The second time he mentioned it, I said, Al, I haven't done anything other than what is my duty, and I hope to continue to follow that course. We parted with my again expressing my concern that the President's counsel had not sufficiently and accurately assessed the facts pertaining to the March 21st conference and that the events that took place that night. He said it would be again reviewed. On the morning of March 1st, I met with Judge Sirica in chambers at 1030. He reviewed the agenda consisting of, one, presentation of indictments and sealed special report of the grand jury, two, unsealing of the special report and reading by Judge Sirica, and the acceptance of the report and its resealing. Re I told Judge Sirica that I would ask the court to specially assign the case in view of its length and protracted nature, and that I was estimating the case could, would take three to four months to try. I asked him to tell the grand jury to return in two weeks for further consideration of other matters that had not been disposed of. I had in mind the possibility of perjury indictments. I also asked the judge for a gag order under Rule 1-27 restraining extrajudicial statements. Shortly before 11, I left Judge Sirica's chambers and went into the courtroom. As I left Judge Sirica's chambers, I heard the judge tell his marshal not to be nervous, but the judge showed some signs of nervousness too. He told me that he had not slept since 3 that morning. When court opened, Judge Sirica's marshal was so nervous he could hardly speak the ritual followed in opening a court. After opening, Judge Sirica looked at me, asked if I had anything to take up with the court. I then rose, went to the lectern, and said, May it please your honor, the grand jury has an indictment to return. 
It also has a sealed report to deliver to the court. The rest of the agenda was then followed, including delivery of a briefcase of material, along with a special report to the court, also a key to the briefcase. The judge indicated that he would have an order on the special report by Monday, in parentheses, he told me he would transmit to the counsel for the House Judiciary Committee under rules that would not interfere with the trial of the accused, uh, in parentheses. The judge's open court asked if I had any further comments, and I stated, quote, due to the length of the trial, conceivably three to four months, it is the prosecution's view that under Rule 3-3C, this case should be specially assigned, and we so recommend. This meant that Judge Sirica could assign the case to himself, which he did, so by order later entered that day. The judge then announced his gag rule and then adjourned court. We sat in the judge's chambers. I told him I thought all went smoothly. He in turn thanked me for my help. The judge was leaving today to speak at the University of Virginia tomorrow to be back on Sunday. I told him I was going to Texas and that I would be back on Tuesday. We both agreed we would call each other in the interim if necessary. If that had been known prior to that indictment, both of these gentlemen should have been disbarred. I'm Dan Rather, CBS News White House correspondent. As you probably know by now, seven persons were indicted today for trying to cover up the Watergate scandals. Tonight, we'll try to examine the importance of those indictments. The accused included all four of President Nixon's former top advisors, the four men who at one time were closest to Mr. Nixon and held the positions of highest trust. All seven of the men indicted today were charged with conspiracy. Some of the charges also included perjury, lying under oath and obstruction of justice. Overshadowing what happens to those seven men is the more important question, what does today's development mean for Richard Nixon? For the President of the United States, is the worst now over or only beginning? This is a CBS News special report. The Watergate Indictments. This broadcast is sponsored by Bufferin, the headache tablet that gives you fast relief and is easy to your stomach. Reporting from CBS News in Washington, here is correspondent Dan Rather. The Washington Federal Grand Jury's report today did not publicly accuse President Nixon of any crime or misdeed. There was, however, a tantalizing mystery, a sealed envelope given by the Grand Jury to Judge John Sirica. The material in that envelope is reported to deal with the President's role in Watergate. And beyond that, the nature of the indictments today and the names of the men indicted raised new questions about the president. Today's indictments concerned only the Watergate scandal cover-up. Two of the four former top Nixon aides named previously had been indicted in other Watergate-related cases, John Mitchell and John Ehrlichman. But two others among the top four were indicted for the first time today, H.R. Bob Haldeman and Charles Colson. The other three men indicted today were Gordon Strawn, one-time White House political operative under Haldeman, Robert Martian, a Justice Department official under Mitchell, and Kenneth Parkinson, a chief attorney for the President's re-election committee. One of those indictments may be especially important to President Nixon's future. Daniel Shore has the details. H.R. Haldeman, who was the highest and closest of President Nixon's aides, is charged in the indictment with three counts of perjury. One of those counts implies a charge against the President himself. It has to do with John Dean's assertion before the Senate Watergate Committee that Mr. Nixon on March 21, 1972, appeared receptive to raising a fund to continue payments for the silence of Watergate defendants. 
I told the president about the fact that there were money demands being made by the seven convicted defendants and that the sentencing of these individuals was not far off. It was during this conversation that Haldeman came into the office. After this brief interruption by Haldeman's coming in, but while he was still there, I told the president about the fact there was no money to pay these individuals to meet their demands. He asked me how much it would cost. I told him I could only make an estimate that it might be as high as a million dollars or more. He told me that that was no problem. He also looked over at Haldeman and repeated the same statement. Haldeman from the same witness seat sought to refute that. He said he'd been present for part of the talk and listened to the tape of the whole meeting and had a different version of Dean's talk with the president. He also reported on a current Hunt blackmail threat. He said Hunt was demanding $120,000 or else he would tell about the seamy things he had done for Ehrlichman. The president pursued this in considerable detail, obviously trying to smoke out what was really going on. He led Dean on regarding the process and what he would recommend doing. He asked such things as, well, this is the thing you would recommend. We ought to do this. Is that right? And he asked where the money would come from, how it would be delivered, and so on. He asked how much money would be involved over the years. And Dean said probably a million dollars. But the problem is that it is hard to raise. The president said there is no problem in raising a million dollars. We can do that, but it would be wrong. If, in fact, the tapes clearly show, he said, but it would be wrong, it's an entirely different context. Now, how sure are you, Mr. Haldeman, that those tapes, in fact, say that? I'm absolutely positive that the tape... Did you hear the, it with the, your the, own voice? Yeah, with my own ears, yes. I mean, with the, your own ears, the, was there any distortion in the quality of the tape in that respect? No, I don't believe so. President Nixon, at a news conference in San Clemente, supported the Haldeman version. Mr. President, Mr. President, could you tell us your recollection of what you told John Dean on March 21 on the subject of raising funds for the Watergate defendants? Certainly. Mr. Haldeman has testified to that, and uh, his statement is accurate. So that was why I concluded, as Mr. Haldeman recalls, perhaps, and did testify very effectively, one, when I said, John, it's wrong, it won't work, we can't give clemency, and we've got to get this story out. And therefore, I direct you, and I direct Haldeman, and I direct Ehrlichman, and I direct Mitchell to get together tomorrow and then meet with me as to how we get this story out. And that but the grand jury, which also heard the March 21st tape, apparently did not hear the president say a payoff fund would be wrong. So count eight of the indictment says that Haldeman's assertions were material to the said investigation and study, and as he then and there well knew, were false. It is of some interest to me to note that the section of the indictment to which you refer, I believe it's section eight, is apparently based on questions that I asked Mr. Haldeman. And I must infer from the fact that the indictment charges that those statements given by Mr. Haldeman in response to my questions are false, I must infer that they must disagree, those statements must disagree with the tapes. I have not heard the tapes, therefore I can't say that with certainty, but you may be assured that as a member of the Watergate Committee, when the case comes to trial, I'll pay particular attention to that part of the proof to hear 
whether or not the Haldeman's testimony, as I tried to elicit it from him in July of 1973, is borne out by the White House tape recordings. Also, according to the indictment, almost immediately after that Oval Office meeting, Haldeman telephoned John Mitchell, who then authorized another $75,000 for Howard Hunt, which indicated that the payments the president had purportedly just called wrong were continuing. No charges made against Mr. Nixon, but the indictment indicates it is not naming all the conspirators. It uses the unusual phrase, other persons to the grand jury known and unknown. That may be spelled out in the separate statement on the president given to Judge Sirica. Indicted persons under the United States Constitution are presumed innocent unless and until convicted by a court. So what follows now are trials. That may be a long, drawn-out procedure. Fred Graham reports on what lies ahead for the seven men named in the indictment. Nobody's going to rush out and arrest these men, although Mitchell, if convicted on all counts, could get 30 years in prison. Ehrlichman and Haldeman, 25 years. Strawn, 15 years. Colson and Parkinson, 10 years. And Mardian, 5 years. They'll assemble in Washington for arraignments on March 9th, a Saturday to accommodate Mitchell, who will spend the week on trial in the Vesco bribery case in New York. Then will come the usual rounds of motions with an expected try by the defendants to move the trial away from Washington and its heavily Democratic population. That will probably fail. And come August or September, this capital city will see a trial in which clustered daily around the defendant's table will be some of the most famous faces of what used to be called the law and order Nixon administration. Ironically, it was John Mitchell and Robert Mardian who made the conspiracy trial popular and who brought us the Chicago 8, the Harrisburg 7, the Gainesville 17, and all the others. And it's probably inevitable that these gentlemen will come to be called the Watergate 7. Their trial is expected to be com complicated and long, perhaps four months, because the offenses alleged in today's indictment are so complex. The indictment makes it clear that Watergate touched off a criminal conspiracy by some of the most powerful men in Washington to obstruct the proper course of justice. It allegedly began with Mitchell, shown here outside his trial today, who allegedly ordered the destruction of documents, attempted to get secret CIA funds to use as hush money, and lied when he protested his innocence to the FBI, the grand jury, and the Senate Watergate Committee. Do you recall any discussion of so-called either gemstone files or uh, uh, wiretapping files? No, I had not heard of the gemstone f files as of that date, and as of that meeting, I had not heard of of the fact that anybody there at that particular meeting knew of, of the wiretapping aspects of it or had any connection with it. H.R. Haldeman, the White House Chief of Staff, seen here at his home today where he declined to talk to reporters, allegedly ordered the destruction of White House documents, turned over a secret $350,000 fund to use as hush money, and later committed perjury about his role and President Nixon's. John Ehrlichman, second in power only to Haldeman at the White House, allegedly sought to purchase the silence of the arrested Watergate burglars by arranging offers of clemency and by recruiting attorney Herbert Kalmbach to raise more hush money. Charles Colson, the White House special counsel, shown making a statement today, allegedly concentrated on the clemency and hush money projects. I know that in the end, 
my innocence will be established, and I put complete faith in God, and I believe in my country. Thank you. After the indictments were handed up today, Judge Sirica surprised everyone by not dismissing the original Watergate grand jury that's been on the job for almost two years now. There's some speculation the grand jury may now be used to subpoena those 27 tapes President Nixon has refused to turn over. And the other two special grand juries are expected to hand down indictments soon on ITT, the Ellsberg break-in, the Milk Fund, and other campaign contribution cases. But the event that started it all, the Watergate break-in and cover-up, is finally out of the grand jury and into the courts. And it's ironic that the grand jury did not discover the two secrets that were being covered up. Who ordered the break-in and bugging at the Watergate, and why? President Nixon tonight, for the second evening in a row, hosted a group of congressmen for a movie at the White House. Tonight's movie was Friendly Persuasion about the Society of Friends, or Quaker Religion. Last night, it was The Sting, about con men. Mr. Nixon has declined to say anything personally about today's indictments. He had one of his middle-level aides say, in answer to a question, that the president is glad the courts are moving to conclude the Watergate case, that the courts are the place to decide guilt or innocence, that all defendants are entitled to full presumptions of innocence, and that the president hopes justice will be done swiftly. Reaction from two top Republican leaders came in Phoenix, Arizona, Vice President Gerald Ford read a statement. Senator Barry Goldwater was interviewed by Ben Silver. We must keep in mind that under our system of justice, anyone accused of a crime is presumed innocent unless proven guilty. I trust that all of the defendants in the Watergate case will get a prompt and fair trial. Our judicial system appears to be working well in this instance. It is in the best interest of the American people that this matter be disposed of as quickly as possible while the court sees to it that all of the rights of the defendants are fully protected. At this point, are, are you satisfied with the way President Nixon is handling the Watergate situation? I think he's doing it about the only way that he can. Uh... With, so, with no evidence at all ever been pointed at him of any uh, wrongdoing, uh, mistakes in judgments, yes, but uh, here's a man that some people have judged uh, guilty without any evidence, which is contrary to the American system and custom. So I think what he's doing uh, now is about all that he can do. A group of young Republicans visited the White House this afternoon, a few hours after the new wave of indictments had been announced. President Nixon's son-in-law, David Eisenhower, was host to the group. He was asked about the president's mood. He said the president did not seem disturbed after the court announcement, and Eisenhower added his own analysis. He's been accused for a year. An indictment is an accusation. And uh, so, as far as I can see, an indictment doesn't represent anything new in this entire case. And... and uh, their guilt or innocence to be established at trial. Political professionals in both parties agree that, justifiably or not, today's indictments and grand jury report mean that President Nixon becomes even more of an issue in this year's elections. Republicans already were reeling from the loss ten days ago of Vice President Ford's old congressional seat in a special election in Grand Rapids, Michigan, an often beaten Democrat using what he called the, quote, moral bankruptcy of the Nixon administration as his theme, upset a heavily favored Republican, to the shock of Mr. Ford and the White House. 
Next Tuesday, there is another special election to fill another traditionally Republican seat, this one in Ohio's first congressional district, centered in the eastern half of Cincinnati and suburbs. Republicans fear that if they lose this seat, on the heels of what is called the Grand Rapids disaster, no GOP candidate anywhere this year will be safe. White House aides, in turn, fear that a loss in the Ohio race will weaken the president's position with congressmen who are wavering on the impeachment question. For a report on reaction to today's indictment in that first congressional district of Ohio, Ike Pappas. Well, I really see nothing, uh, nothing new or nothing surprising. It seems to me that the indictments which we've just heard about are uh, about what most people in this area, and I imagine most people around the country, have been expecting for some time. As Republican candidate Bill Gratison toured a General Electric plant outside of Cincinnati today, he attempted to minimize the impact the Watergate indictments might have on his chances. The people, he says, will vote for him because of his stand on the principal issues in his district, mainly the economy and abortion. He had nothing to do with Watergate, therefore, he feels, he should not be judged by it. It is plain that Bill Gratison is one Republican who does not seek the support of President Nixon. One of the areas of my greatest disagreement is his entire handling of the Watergate situation. I think it's been deplorable. I think he's been too secretive, uh, too legalistic, and I think we would have had this whole matter over much quicker, and the presentations could have been made to the courts much faster if the president had come forward with the information which he has available uh, without all, all of the delays. If it wasn't for Watergate, you uh, probably would have had an easier time of it here, is that correct? Well, I'll let you know after Tuesday. Democratic candidate Tom Lucan arrived at the same plant as news of the indictments was being broadcast. In my book, it is evidence, that is what the president's appointees have, have done while in office and when he had failed to remove them. Uh, if this evidence indicates that he has been deficient in that respect in failing to remove them, then that is a possible grounds for impeachment in my estimation. I'm not making any judgment as to whether uh, it is sufficient grounds at this time on this sketchy bit of information. Lucan gave no indication that he would use today's indictments in the final days of his campaigning. He's already given a slight edge in the race, and today's indictments are expected to make him a solid favorite. Ike Pappas, CBS News, Evendale, Ohio. Joining Daniel Shore, Fred Graham, and me in our CBS News Washington studios now is Leslie Stoll. Another correspondent who has been active in our coverage of Watergate and related affairs. Leslie, are there any other shoes to drop now in terms of Special Prosecutor Leon Jaworski and the Watergate cover-up case? Well, the indictment itself had very few new revelations, but Jaworski himself said just earlier this week that he personally says he understands the Watergate case itself. There's nothing in this indictment that says... Uh, that charges specifically who ordered the break-in into the Watergate or even why. Now, I don't really expect that there'll be more indictments in this, but certainly uh, in the trial we should learn exactly what these men went into the Watergate for. We really don't know that yet. It's uh, one of the more often uh, asked questions of why the Watergate burglars went into the National Committee headquarters. What were they after? Exactly. Now, it's, it's your theory that we'll find that out at the trial. Well, Jaworski says he understands the whole Watergate story. I would expect that it will come out, although no one has been charged uh, in the break-in itself in this round of indictments, only the cover-up. Also, a, a thing to note is that this period between indictments and trial is traditionally a time when defendants feel the pressure to plea bargain 
uh, the most. As uh, Fred Graham said in his piece, Mitchell stands to get up to 30 years imprisonment. Uh, both Ehrlichman and Haldeman stand to get 25 years each. The pressure is on them to make some kind of a deal. I think the question we now have to ask is, one, can they take the pressure? But even more important, can the president take the pressure? And that's not as much a political question as it is a psychological and even a, a physical question, one about his health. Keeping in mind when you say that they stand to get 25 or 30 years, that's if convicted and those would be maximum sentences. Well, Dan Shore, in your judgment, can President Nixon take the pressure in, first of all, a political sense, secondly, in a legal sense? Well, Dan, you notice that uh, Senator Goldwater said that no evidence has yet been pointed at the president. And I don't think he read the indictment because I think tonight, for the first time, we can say that evidence by inference at least is pointed at the president. The grand jury decided it could not indict the president. They'd been advised by Special Prosecutor Jaworski that that would create great legal difficulties. But they described a conspiracy. They called it a large and concerted conspiracy. And yet they didn't say who was the head of the conspiracy. Uh, they also, as uh, we developed earlier, had perjured himself when he quoted the president as having said that this uh, payoff fund could be raised but would be wrong. So I think there is an inference, aside from whatever may be in this special presentment which the grand jury has given to Judge Sirica, there is an inference against the president in this indictment. Uh, and I think that this is another added source of pressure on him. I would not be the venture to predict what, how he would react to it, but this affects congressional races. Congressional races affect him, and there is a momentum to the whole process that seems now to be gathering even greater force. Fred Graham, there is no possibility uh, that we can outline at the moment that the president will be uh, in court, is there? Well, the conventional wisdom around here, uh, Dan, has been that the president is now off the hook. The this was the one chance that he might have been brought into an indictment some way and either embarrassed or actually brought in as a litigant. Uh, I dispute that, Dan. I think that uh, even though today in the indictment sense, that's going forward and he's not in that. Uh, uh, I feel that uh, legal events are going to turn in such a way that he'll be very much back in court, at least in three possible ways we can foresee. Uh, the, the subpoena for those 27 tapes that Leon Jaworski says do uh, concern the cover-up uh, could issue. Uh, there could be more litigation over those suspicious gaps and hums in those tapes. And then finally, the House Judiciary Committee might have to go to court to enforce its subpoena. So we could find when uh, the election time comes around next November that rather than all of this being a matter of the past, the president could be right back in the heat of court litigation as he was that time last year. Leslie Stahl, there were a number of people who were not indicted today that there's been a great deal of speculation about. Now, without zeroing any, on any one person per se, for example, what happened to Patrick Gray, who by his own testimony uh, was responsible uh, for destroying some evidence? Well, well, that's, uh, I'd be very careful about that, Dan. Uh, he was responsible for destroying something. We do not know that it was evidence. Well, I was going to say that. We're, uh, he we're destroyed not sure some he was papers. guilty of anything. And uh, it may well be that because somebody decided that was not evidence and therefore didn't constitute obstruction of justice, it may have been misconduct but not a crime. Is it also possible that uh, Patrick Gray traded out his testimony for a promise of not being indicted? Is that a possibility? It's a possibility, certainly. 
you can say so more sure, assuredly with other people who are actually mentioned in the indictment. Al Patrick Gray's name is never mentioned once in 50 pages, which is kind of interesting right there. I can't explain it. But there are other people who are mentioned. Uh, for example, William Bittman, who was E. Howard Hunt's lawyer, is mentioned. He is uh, not indicted, and he's not mentioned even as an unindicted co-conspirator. I would guess that is because he's cooperating, but that's a guess. Uh, other people, like John Caulfield, who actually offered defendants executive clemency, uh, are mentioned and not indicted in any way. And one can only assume that they are cooperating, will testify at the trials. Uh, this this whole case was handled in a classical sense in that the prosecutors went after the lower echelon uh, people in the conspiracy to get the higher-ups. In, in, in one, sense, one sense, it wasn't quite uh, classical. Uh, sometimes conspiracy cases, Dan, uh, involve the uh, kitchen sink approach. You dump all of the charges into the kitchen sink, uh, they allege a broad conspiracy, and uh, hope out of all the charges, some of them stick. This seems to have been done very much uh, the opposite way. You get the impression that the, the shaky charges were shucked off, uh, and that uh, these charges are charges that the prosecutors, in any, in, in, in any event, very much believe that they have a good chance of proving. Do you think, do you think uh, Fred, that some of the charges which involve Perjury against people who said they failed to rec recollect certain things are very strong charges? Yes, I do. I think that, well, again, pardon me, Dan. Well, I'm sorry. I think we'll have to leave it with, yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> the Watergate case is not the first scandal in American political history, and one dares to say it won't be the last, but it is in some ways unique. One of America's premier political historians is Dr. William Luchtenberg of Columbia University, and we asked him this week to make an effort at putting Watergate and related events into some historical perspective. I think there are only two previous episodes to which the current developments might reasonably be compared. One is the grand scandals of the 1870s, and the other is the scandals of the Harding administration of the 1920s, particularly the notorious Teapot Dome affair. In some ways, the three episodes are similar. All involve Republican administrations, all take place in the aftermath of a war, and all reach to the cabinet level. And yet, despite these similarities, I do think that the current developments are unique, and in two respects in particular. One is that there's never been a previous scandal that so directly affected so many people within the White House circle itself. And the second is that the two previous administration scandals were primarily uh, involved with financial corruption of one kind or other whereas the Watergate affair touches the very nature of the democratic process, the very essence of the political process. In that sense, it's unique and a great deal more frightening. For Daniel Shore, Leslie Stahl, and Fred Graham, Dan Rather, CBS News, Washington. Good night. This has been a CBS News special report, The Watergate Indictments. <laughs>
thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again, and so long for now.